right, got a refreshment sign-up sheet. If I can pass that around, I'd appreciate your help in um, in that regard. Well, we've been working through a series of classes that takes about five, six years called Spiritual Success. And I call it that because, um, not because everything in life is going to result in in uh, exactly how you want it, but because of how Joshua used the word success in Joshua 1.9, God promised to his people that <clears throat> if you keep my word, um, then you will have success. <clears throat> if you meditate on it day and night, kind of like what we looked at last week in Psalm 1. And so this series of classes is designed for us to, to look for spiritual success, not in a high-paying job or popularity <clears throat> or a clean bill of health, but but rather how God defines success. Um, many people think that you know God's promise of success is a guarantee of health and prosperity, but, but just consider Paul here in 1 Corinthians 12:23, who we would see as a good example, a faithful man and one who had spiritual success but was far from health and prosperity. He says, I was imprisoned, 1 Corinthians 12, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I went. Uh, I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, does that sound like success to you from a world from the world's perspective? But but Paul, much like Christ, did not live a cozy, comfortable, or even popular life. Jesus and Paul received scorn and rebuke and beatings and all sorts of other dangers. And yet the scripture tells us that 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 no one lived a more successful life in the eyes of God than than Jesus Christ. And, and he, instead of having this great popularity that we might, we might connect with success, he actually came and died. So when we think of success from God's perspective, we should think of what, what God desires in us, God's will, God's, God's uh, desires for us. And Jesus would often use that phrase, that I have come to do the will of my Father. He says in John four uh, or John six thirty eight, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so I think God's desire for us is to do the same thing: is to find out what His will is and to do it. And so that's really the purpose of this of the, these series of classes uh, called spiritual success. Success. And with that in mind. Um, my plan during the Sunday school hours to instruct us regarding the whole counsel of God with, um, in a way that will help equip us to do the work of the ministry. And I've broken this, um, this uh, purposeful discipleship class or series on uh, five major categories. The first is the fundamentals of Christianity. And we, we have just finished that first category. We looked at topics like membership and evangelism and and life as a believer, and then we just finish making wise choices. The second main category uh, in this overall class, spiritual success, is called biblical overview. And that's where we start today. And we're going to look at three main um, series of classes. How to study the Bible. That will take us 12 weeks. 
then a survey of the Old Testament and the survey of the New Testament, which will take us about a year. So that'll uh, begin sometime in the spring. All right, but for now, we want to look at um, how to study the Bible. And we want to begin with two parts of the class. Uh, the first two parts of the class are how we got our Bible. So where did it come from? And that's what we want to, to give our attention to today. So there's the introduction to and kind of reminder of where we're at overall. And then we'll get into the, the material and the text here in just a second. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your instruction and that you have given us your word and have allowed us to be able to know what you desire of us. And we pray that you would help us to discern your mind as best as we can and uh, with the limited um, ability that we have and with the amount of revelation that we have from you. And we pray that this class and the next one as we look at how we got our Bible would be an encouragement to us and also help inform us of, of some of the questions that we might have had over various translations. And we pray that as a result, it would give us greater confidence in the Word that we have in front of us and greater confidence in, in what you are doing in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's begin by asking the question there at the top of your handout, why is it so important to study the Bible? And the first answer that we have here is that the Bible is how the Creator speaks to us. The Bible is how the Creator speaks to us. And then secondly, we study the Bible because the Bible is a book about God. If we're going to know anything about God beyond mere speculation or beyond what we can see in creation and know in our hearts from, from our conscience that God has written on our hearts, then, then we have to listen to how He speaks. How has He given us His special revelation? So it's a book about God. Um, thirdly, it's the only way to know Jesus Christ. Right? We, uh, Hebrews 1, the first several verses say that, that God has spoken in many times in many ways, but, but now He has spoken through His Son, and His Son is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And His Son upholds all things by the word of His power. So, we have a revelation about God, about Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we can know Jesus Christ is through the Scriptures. We can't see Jesus Christ in the stars or the trees. Um, and, and certainly a little birdie's not going to tell us about Jesus Christ. Now, we can learn about, a lot about God through those things, but, but we can't know how to get to God. We can't know how to have a right relationship with God apart from the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are about Christ. Uh, number four, it's the means that God uses to restore our relationship with Him. And when I say us, they're talking about mankind as a whole, right? Uh, like, when were we ever right with God? From the time that we were conceived, we were conceived in sin, uh, Psalm 139 says. And so, um, when were we ever right with God? Well, that's we weren't. You know, as individuals, we were not right with God. Um, that's why we needed Jesus Christ. But... But as mankind, as humankind, we were, right? When Adam was created and Eve, uh, God said at the end of uh, chapter 1, I think it was, that behold, everything is very good. And, um, and yet, that perfect fellowship between God and Adam and Eve w was broken when they sinned. 
And so God put into place the plan that He had to restore fellowship to humankind. And the means by which He restores that relationship, restores those people to Himself and us, is through special revelation, through His Word. And so the purpose of God speaking to us in the Scriptures was relational. God was was putting in place a plan or putting in place the plan He had already made to, to get us back to Himself. And um, that's why you find you know, what, what you know about Jesus in the Scriptures is not so much about His looks. You don't know um, all of his, uh, his features and so on, His tastes, His characteristic activities. Um, but instead, you know about how what he expects of us, he, he, you know what is most important to him, you know what it is that gets us to to God, right? We have to repent of our sins and believe in him. Number five is the fountain from which our praise to God flows. So the scriptures uh, really are the source from which our praise flows. In fact, that's why you're going to find that a lot of the songs that we sing uh, are driven from or driven by uh, direct, passage, clear passages of Scripture, right? We 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 have, I mean, several just in this this um, hymns of praise that you have in front of you that are directly from the Psalms or paraphrases of the Psalms help us take the the Word of God and then be a way in which we can uh, voice our love and our affection for God, our praise to God. Number six, it helps us in times of trial. Psalm 119.92 says, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have, I would have perished in my affliction. So it helps us. It's, it's our stability. Number seven, it tells us what God expects of us. As we saw in the last class, you know, he, he expects us to be wise. You know, to walk with the wise and not with the fool. And then number eight, it's one of the most important things you can do for your spiritual development for your spiritual development. And so, in short, our life depends on it. Is that not what Jesus said? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, you know, as I often say, we, we can have meaningful existence apart from food. Paul, we just read about Paul, how he didn't have all his needs met, right? He had sleepless nights. He was hungry, thirsty, often without food in cold and Exposure, and he tells um, he tells the Corinthians, you know, I, I'm even homeless. You know, I, I don't have a place to lay my head, much like our Savior. And yet, he could still have a meaningful existence apart from having his his needs met, even the most basic of needs that we would say you have to have, right? Food, clothing, and shelter. And um, Paul says, I can still have meaningful existence apart from those things, but. So we, we, we will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, conversely, it is not possible for us to have a meaningful existence apart from God's word. Paul said God's grace was, was sufficient for him, that God's power is prefer, uh, perfected in his weakness. And so most gladly, therefore, he will rather boast in weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ would dwell in him. 2 Corinthians 12:9. So for the first two weeks here in this uh, series of classes on on um, 
how to study the Bible, I'd like to, 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 to look at how we got our Bible. And then we'll move from there. You can see the, the schedule on the back. We'll move from there to in, the basics of interpretation. And then we'll look at how we take a text of Scripture and expose the truth and apply it to our lives. There's three, three parts to that, observation, dissection, and, and application. All right. Any questions? Yes, Jonathan. What way? Well, the Bible is how the Creator speaks to us. He also, I mean, the Holy Spirit is one of the means of the um, But But how does the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit speak to us? But what does He do? But what does He use for conviction? What does he use to, to show that, you, that that is sin? How do you know something's sin and something else isn't? Okay. How is your conscience informed? The primary way. That's what I'm getting at. It's the Scriptures. That's how the Spirit speaks to us. That's how He convicts us. That's how He, he speaks with our spirits right, and tells us that we are the Son of God because we have promises in the Scripture right, that inform us. So we're, we're basing what we know about ourselves and our sin on what is objective, right, which is the Scriptures. There's no change in that. So... Um, we'll definitely get into the Spirit and His connection to the, to the Scriptures as we move through this. In fact, all these classes will, will address that. But, but what we're talking about now is why is the Scripture most important? We haven't got into how the Scripture is used to, to, um, to change us and to, to inform us. So does that answer your question or are you, am, I, am I missing something? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Greg. Number eight. Uh, spiritual. All right. Let's take a look at the evidence for inspiration. How can we know that the Bible comes? from God because what we're claiming when we take the word of God and we say you know God is speaking to me through his word or when we we take the word of God and we take it to our non-christian friend how can we claim that how do we know that that's true well uh the best way that we can know that the word of God is true is that the scriptures tell us and so let's consider two basic questions first what evidence exists to prove that this claim is true? 
that, that, that the Bible is true? And then secondly, how can we know for sure that the Bible is a reliable testimony of the very words of God? And these are um, several um, proofs that we, can, that we can use when we consider uh, how the Scriptures have come into to, to being. Um, but, but obviously the most important is that, that the Scriptures have told us that they are true, right? Jesus says uh, in John 17, 17, um, sanctify them. He's talking to God about the disciples. He says, sanctify them, change them by your word. Your word is true. So that's how we know that the Scriptures are true. So let's start first with the character of the Bible. Uh, the Bible tells us it was God's choice to disclose Himself and, to, and, and, and His view of the world. And so that disclosure, that explanation is what we call revelation. right? He, he did this through creation. God um, reveals Himself through creation. Everyone knows that God exists, Romans 1, verses 18-20. through 20. Our conscience tells us that God exists, Romans 2, 14 and 15. But here's the clearest way, John 1, 14, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is Jesus Christ, the, the expression, the best representation of who God is, is through His written Word, the Bible. Uh, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1 and see what Paul has to say about this uh, special revelation. Galatians chapter 1. Will someone read verses 11 and 12? Where did he get this revelation about the gospel? Right? How does he know that the gospel is true? And he, he says, I, the reason I know is because it wasn't received from man, nor was it taught to me by man, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and this revelation uh, comes through uh, this process that we'll talk about here in just a minute, which is inspiration. That, that God revealed Himself to His his uh, people, starting with Adam and then through Noah and and Moses and so on. Um, so you have um, Abraham being told to go to Canaan. Jacob hearing uh, from God in a dream. Uh, Joseph hearing from God in a dream. Moses commissioned by God at the burning bush to lead Israel out of Egypt. God talking to Joshua how he should fight against the, the city of Jericho. Those are all forms of revelation. Those are all forms of direct and special revelation. Not like the revelation we get in, in seeing the creation. That's general and it's not specific. It doesn't tell us exactly what God wants of us. We just know that God exists and that He's eternal and that, um, and that, that He is the judge. But we don't, know, we don't know about what His expectations are for us. And so, as God's telling these people His Word, His direct special revelation... They're writing these things down. And we have their writings all the way back to the to 1500s B.C., um, starting with Moses. Job likely could have written before that, maybe as early as 2000 B.C. Um, and then we have writings from that time all the way till the, the first century A.D. 
And so this inerrant writing down of, of Revelation is known as inspiration. It's, it's inspiration. Here's how B.B. Warfield uh, describes inspiration. He says, "...it's a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness." So the inspiration is not necessarily in the person as much as it's in the writings. So what we have is inspired writings. It is, that is, it's, it's from the very mind of God and it's, it, it goes directly into the, the text that we have. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that, that all Scripture is inspired by God. And so the written Word of God came about as the Holy Spirit guided the human authors to write it down. And so as a result, because it comes from the Holy Spirit, we could say, we're going to look here in just a second and see how many different authors there are, but, but really, in a sense, there's one author, right? It is God, it's the Holy Spirit, that He is the author of the Scriptures. And so as a result, we should expect that everything that we have in the Scriptures, to the extent that they, that they um, represent the originals, everything that we have in the Scriptures is inerrant, that is, without error. In its original writing, there are no errors in, um, in the autographs of, of the Scriptures. They are the exact words from the mind of God. And so that's why there's such a strong um, warning against those who add to the Scriptures or take away from it, right, in Revelation 22. So, uh, the first reason we can be sure... That, that what we have is the actual Word of God is that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's um, God's Word and God is without error and we would expect His words to be without error as well and we would be right. Secondly, the second reason we can know that the Scriptures are true and that they are the very words of God is that the Bible claims that. Um, so let me... Let's see... Would someone look up Second Samuel twenty three two? Raise your hand if you can do that for me, Paul. And then, um, well, Acts twenty eight twenty five. Won't look all these up. Acts twenty eight twenty five. Bill. So what we're going to see is, and if you look, were to look up these other ones um, in your free time, then you'd notice that that the authors are claiming to be, claiming to be under the the direction of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like they were. Um, uh, some kind of um, uh, thoughtless, you know, where they just kind of put their hand on the page and then all of a sudden it takes over and it starts writing for them. That's not what it was like. They were, in, they were involved in the process of inspiration without being able to, to put any sinful or errors within the, the writing itself. That is, they knew that the Holy Spirit was inspiring these writings. Um, listen to this first one here, Second Samuel 23, 2. All right, so this is David speaking, and obviously David's the author of many of the Psalms. Um, and he's saying, The Spirit spoke through me, His Word was on my tongue. So he, he knows he's got a, um, a, a consciousness about the Spirit's working through him in the process of inspiration. In Matthew 15:4, Jesus quotes what Moses wrote and called, calls it the same thing as what God had said. So Moses wrote it, but God said it. So those things are, are kind of used interchangeably. How about Acts twenty eight twenty five? And when they agreed not, 
All right. So the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet, and then Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah six nine. So he's quoting what Isaiah had written or or had said, and he's saying prior to that, this is what the Holy Spirit has spoken. And there's some good passages in Hebrews as well that you could look up as well, where he attributes the the work of the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. He actually says the Holy Spirit says that he's still speaking uh, through this word, and and it's the word that was written down by these faithful men. Um, all right, let's let's think of the next one here. First, um, the Bible is inspired, the character of the Bible, then secondly, the claims of the Bible. Then third, the uniqueness or the unity of the Bible. Here's another way. What you can be sure of is that we do have one author, one message, and the reason that's important is because when you come to one text of Scripture, there is no actual contradiction with any other text of Scripture. No matter how diverse this Bible is, and we're going to see this, so you can start writing these down. 66 books, right? You know that. 37 in the Old Testament, or 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 66 books written over 1,500 years. 1,500 years. Could be as much as, as 2,000, again, if Job wrote in 2000 B.C. Uh, we don't know the date of his writing, but we do know Moses was around 1500 B.C. And then, obviously, the end of it was uh, A.D. 100. Forty different authors, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and then on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and North Africa. And yet, we have one message, right? You have... All these different authors with all these various experiences. Moses was a leader trained in the land of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. David, a shepherd. And, and they wrote in various places, the wilderness, dungeons, palaces. Their books include history, poetry, romance, prose, and prophecy. You have 2,930 different characters, uh, that is, people that are described, depicted in 1,551 places. They wrote on a number of controversial subjects, and yet they had perfect harmony and continuity. So that you can, you can affirm what you see in one text of Scripture with something that's shown or proved or illustrated in another text of Scripture. And we shouldn't be surprised by that again because we have one message, one author, God, through His Holy Spirit. And uh, so this is harmony, right? It, this is not just you know a collection of off, authors who they just kind of happen to have the same theme and then someone all decided to put them all together, right? Go to two or three different doctors and they're not going to tell you the, two, the same thing about your body, right? And they can't harmonize on what they think about your situation and yet we have such a diversity over a long period of time, multiple different cultures, and yet we have one message that, is, um, that has continuity, that has unity. All right, any questions or comments on that first three? All right, next, fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. Uh, here's another way we can know that the Scriptures are true, right? If one of these prophecies uh, did not come true, then 
can't we be sure that 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 prophecy or the author of that prophecy is false? Right? Isn't that how God taught us to test whether a prophet was real or not? Right? If his prophecy becomes false, then it's obvious that he's not true. So all we have to do is go back to the Old Testament and look at all these prophecies that that were given. Now some of them are still waiting to be fulfilled, so that's you know we can't we can't judge those yet. But the ones that were supposed to be fulfilled have been fulfilled, and that's the point. Um, we can be sure that the scriptures are true because everything that God said He would do, in up until this time, has come to pass. Right, and and you have examples there that we're not going to go through. Further um, proof or um, further reason that we can be sure of the Scriptures. Again, um, I, I think we're the archaeology. I think is more of a support. This is not something that I would I would hang on. Like this is the most important thing. The most important thing is that the Scriptures say it. The Scriptures say that this, that they were written by the Holy Spirit, and the Scriptures prove that um, that that everything it says is right. It, and there's unity. Those are the those are the primary things. Fulfilled prophecy, obviously. Um, but archaeology here is, is a support. As we see archaeology come, it actually shows that the Scriptures are true. There's no archaeology that's going to come about that's going to disprove the Scriptures. Right? That's, that's kind of the point. Um, so we have all sorts of um, some uh, ancient finds or, or recent finds of ancient items like the black obelisk of the, uh, of the Assyrian king who, who has a picture of um, Jehu bowing down to the king of Assyria. And that comes directly from the Scriptures. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find um, different uh, kings having artifacts that, that attest to actual events that happened in the Scriptures. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are probably the most significant recent find. And, um, and uh, those were discovered uh, between 1947 and 1962. And we'll talk about those here in just a second. All right. So, in addition to the archaeological finds, we can also check the historical facts, right? Because one of the things that you're, we find as we go through Scripture is scientific and historical facts, and, and we want to make sure that those, obviously, we don't have to test the Scriptures because the, the Scriptures are self-authenticating, and who are we to test the Scriptures? The Scriptures are strong on their own, but what we see in history with these places that Luke mentions or... Um, or the cities, or the islands, or whatever—they're they're actually real places, and um, and so we're not surprised when we when we find that that history or science actually support what the scriptures say. So when was the Old Testament written? Uh, I've already mentioned a couple times that Moses may have been the earliest author with 15, in 1500 BC, but but again, Job could have been earlier. But they were originally recorded on stone and clay tablets and leather scrolls, and these documents, these autographs were written on, uh, in, the, in the language of Hebrew, and then portions of it were written in Aramaic. Uh, we'll talk more about how the, the transmission of the text happens, that is, how do we move from the original autograph to the manuscripts to the translations that we have today. And so we'll, we'll spend most of our time talking about that next week. Um, once the, the Old Testament was completed around 400 B.C., what we find is that Jesus and the apostles actually affirm what was in the Old Testament. So Jesus would often quote from the books of Moses. 
and um, and say that, that they were on behalf of God. Or as we've already seen, you know, Paul is quoting from Isaiah and saying that this is actually the Holy Spirit speaking. And so we have affirmation that the Old Testament is true and that it's accepted by by the church. Um, Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's saying all the things that are written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. He's affirming uh, the compilation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was finished around 250 B.C. So Malachi was the last author of the Old Testament in 400 B.C. And then um, the Greek translation, remember most of the the Christians during that time, believers, I should say, prior to the time of Christ, believers during that time would have been uh, Greek-speaking, and so they needed a copy of the Old Testament in the Greek language, and that's called the, the Septuagint. And, and that's probably the Bible that the Old Testament that Jesus and the, Apostle, and the Apostles used when they were referring a lot of their quotations come directly from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And even though it was written in Greek, um, it was, a, as best they could do, a literal translation of the, of the Hebrew. Um, all right, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls quickly. I need to move on to the New Testament here in just a second. Between 47, 1947 and 1962, these scrolls were found um, in this Qumran community, this Essene sect who lived in a place called Qumran, which is right on the shores of the Dead Sea. And over the, the course of these uh, 15 years or so, uh, this communal society had, um, or, or this discovery was made of a communal society who had preserved a number of ancient texts, not just Scripture, um, there were actually over 900 documents discovered, but 200 of them were of the Old Testament manuscripts. And before this discovery, the earliest copies that we had of the Old Testament were around A.D. 900. And so this is an amazing find. In the 20th century, we find, um, we find uh, copies of the Old Testament that date back, uh, really, back to 100 B.C. So... So, a thousand years earlier than our earliest copy of the Old Testament, we now have better copies than we had before. Now, not of the whole thing, but portions of the Old Testament. And by comparing these copies of the Old Testament, so think about this. If, if our most recent copy of the Old Testament was 900 A.D., that's the most recent copy, then you have basically a thousand years or more of copies that, where there could be mistakes that were made, because remember, they're doing it by hand. And we'll talk more about that next week. And, and so, how can we be sure that this copy that, that we have, the most recent one, being 8900, how can we be sure that this copy is the Word of God? Well, actually what happened was when they found this, these earlier copies, a thousand years earlier, they, they checked that against what they were using as their Scripture and they found those things to be precise. That, that what they were using was a, a faithful representation of the Scriptures. And so... Um, that uh, um, gives us good confidence that, that the Old Testament that we have today is what was originally recorded. So, we'll, again, we'll talk about more how this transmission happens from the originals to the manuscripts to the, to the, um, 
to the translations that we have. But but this is kind of a brief overview. Any questions on the Old Testament? All right, how about the New Testament? The books of the New Testament were written um, probably between the, the, the 60s and the 90s A.D. Okay, the earliest being Galatians and the latest being, uh, actually the earliest being the Gospels. I think Mark was the first Gospel. So he's probably in the 50s or 60s. And then the last one, what do you think the last book was written in the New Testament? Yeah, Revelation. So that was A.D. 95. John was an older man by then probably in his 80s or 90s at that time, he writes uh, the book the book of the Revelation. And so that's the time period in which the New Testament were written. And the New Testament was written by apostles and by those who were closely associated with the apostles. So the, the autographs, the original writings, were completed around AD 100, and then they were copied by hand so that they could be disseminated, right? We don't We don't just have like, the original copy, and then everybody has to come and, and gather around the original. No, the, the purpose of the Scriptures is to disseminate them, to get them out to as many people as possible, which is why we had such a great uh, revival or we could, we could have a, 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 an awakening, really, during the 1500s when the printing press came around, right? Because what happened was the, the very first thing that was printed, I think, on the printing press was the Gutenberg Bible. And, and as a result, they were able to pass the, the copy of the Scriptures around, not just to churches, but to actually individuals. And, um, and as a result, people started reading the Scriptures and coming to salvation. Um, that was in the printing press, A.D. 1456. Um, today, there are over 5,600 existing Greek manuscripts that have been discovered um, which contain either all or part of the New Testament. And then in addition to that, there are 18,000 non-Greek manuscripts. So they, obviously not everybody speaks Koine Greek, so even at that time, so they would translate it into other languages so that people could understand it. And then there's also 36,000 Latin um, quotations that come from the New Testament. And so the New Testament is by far the most, the best attested ancient document in history, whether sacred or secular. So just to put that in comparison, uh, just let's just take just the Greek manuscripts. Um, we have about 5,600 Greek manuscripts. Now that's not the whole New Testament, but it's at least portions of the New Testament. Compare that to 2,000 manuscripts of the Iliad, right? or only a couple hundred of the works of Julius Caesar or uh, Aristotle. And yet, uh, what, what people try to do is, well, how can you possibly say that the Scriptures can be true? Um, well, one of the reasons we know it's true is because we have so many manuscripts of it, right? And that actually attests to its originality or its, its reality. Um, nobody questions whether Aristotle, what he said was actually what he said, right? We, have the, we only have a hundred or less manuscripts of Aristotle's writings, and yet we don't say, well, maybe he didn't say that. Maybe one of the scribes changed it or something like that, right? We don't, we don't say that. We just take it as truth. Not what he was saying is truth, but, but actually what he was saying um, was what was written down and what we still have. In other words, we don't question the validity of the manuscripts of Aristotle or Julius Caesar. Um, so when we have thousands more than that, then it would 
doesn't make sense to question the, the validity of the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament. So, let's uh, think about the New Testament canon, C-A-N-O-N, right? How, how was the New Testament put together? And this is a process that, that theologians call canonization. The word canon means rule or measuring rod. So what is the measuring rod for how one of the books that we have or all the books that we have fit into the Bible? How can we be sure that it actually meets up to the standard that's necessary so that it actually is included in the Bible that we have today? And here are four ways that uh, the early church fathers and later theologians agree that is the best way to determine which, which books should be included. And particularly, this is talking about the New Testament. Okay, the, the Old Testament, there's not much debate over whether those books should be included or not. Uh, they, they, are, they are unified and, um, and they're accepted as truth, mainly because we have so many quotations of them in the New Testament. But what about the New Testament? How can we know that these 27 books that we have are the Word of God, are the ones that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. The first way that we can tell is by apostolic authority, okay? by the authority of an apostle. So, in order for the church to accept a book into the canon, the early church, to accept the book into the canon, it had to be either written by an apostle or it had to be supported by or backed by an apostle. So, of the 27 New Testament books, there are only probably six that, that were not written by apostles. Mark, Luke, Acts, both written by Luke, James, Jude, and then possibly Hebrews. Okay, so, so five or six that were not written by apostles. But Mark was a close associate of which apostle? Whose perspective is he writing from? Peter's, right? Peter's telling him direct stories and you can hear that in the writing. Like when, when Peter goes to, or when Jesus goes to heal the daughter uh, Peter remembers the exact words that Jesus said at that time. Or when, um, I can't think of another example right now, but, but Mark is writing uh, with the authority of the Apostle Peter, obviously the authority of God himself. But, but um, Luke was a companion of whom? Which Apostle? Paul, right? He's, he travels with him. Paul's constantly, when he's writing, he's saying, from Paul and Timothy, your brother, to the church at and then he, he talks to them. So, so uh, Luke would, would, would have seen these things firsthand. In fact, again, I mentioned this earlier, but in, in the book of Acts, if you just study um, the pronouns of how Luke writes, he's often saying, we went to this place, we were shipwrecked. And then he goes on to say, they, because at those times he, he stayed behind. Uh, James was um, called the pillar of the church in Galatians 2.10. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. James saw the resurrected Lord and was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews doesn't give us his name. Uh, could have been Paul, could have been Apollos, could have been someone else. Um, but Hebrews 1 seems to, to, to authenticate the book. So the first is apostolic authority. This is what the early church fathers would have been looking for. If it's not written by apostle, an apostle or supported by an apostle, then we, we, we will not include it. We don't think that it's from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, uh, they need to have they, they had to make a claim for divine authority. Okay, that, that, that this is actually from the Word of God. Again, this is back to this um, 
this consciousness that the writers had that they were actually receiving the very Word of God from the Holy Spirit of God. Right? So they actually claim divine authority in these 27 books. Third, consistent theology. Right? The theology that they taught had to be internally consistent. There could no, not be any actual contradictions. Now, there can be an apparent a contradictions. Uh, apparent contradictions means that we don't quite see how they fit together, and there's lots of those. But there are, there are no real contradictions where it says, in one case, we are saved by works, and another place, we're saved by, we're saved by faith. Right? That's not, that's not the case. Instead, they are internally consistent. And then fourthly, they had to be used and accepted by believers. So throughout history, the New Testament books have, have overwhelmingly been accepted by the church. And, and this might not seem that important, but suppose you went to a local bookstore and cataloged all their books. Okay? And, and then you took out that catalog 50 years from now. How many of those books do you think would still be in circulation? How about 100 years? How about 200 years? How about 300 years? How many of those books would still be in circulation on the shelves at a local bookstore? Right? And, and the point is, is that 300 years after the New Testament was written, it was clear which books the Holy Spirit was using in the lives of believers. So these are the ones that stand the test of time. These are the ones that endure the scrutiny. Um... That, that could be out there. And believe me, there were many battles for over which books should be included in this, the text of Scripture in the early church. But these are the ones that have stood the test of time. And these are the ones that, that we believe are the inspired Word of God. Um, now, the most debated writing outside the canon of Scripture is the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha means hidden or doubtful writings. These books are written near the end of the Old Testament and in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are several reasons why these books should not be included. First, they were not written by a prophet or an apostle, so there's no inherent authority behind these writings. They're not backed by, um, by apostles. Secondly, they never claim inspiration. They never claim to be... right. That was one of our, our tests, is divine authenticity or divine authority that they actually claim that they're from God. Third, Jesus and the New Testament writers never quoted from the Apocrypha, even though they were aware of them. So what you're going to find in the Apocrypha, some of it could be historical and could be actual truth. I haven't read through it myself, but, but, but we don't include them in the Scripture like other churches do um, uh, because we, we don't think that they meet the qualifications of a book that, that can go into the canon. Um, I'm going to skip the, the question at the top there in the back. How is the New Testament copied? Because we'll look at that more uh, next week. That'll be most of our time. And that last chart there, I think we have that on the. I, I'll have that on the handout for you next week as well. So we'll talk about that. All right. I know that's a lot and somewhat ap- academic, but um, I find it be helpful to be reminded of of why we have the scriptures. You know we. We don't just blindly follow whatever everybody else has done. We want to think critically in a helpful way um, about what the Scriptures are about and how they came about. Any questions or comments? Uh, 
Yeah. For what? Where are you talking about? Where are you talking about? Are you talking about on the second page under years? Um, under the uniqueness of the Bible? Um, the number of years that it took to write the whole Bible. From 1500 to 8100. Yeah. Yeah, over what period of time? Right. What's that? How long we've had it? Right. How long have we had the completed scripture? Two thousand years, probably. Yeah. But but no. How long did it take to write? That's that really to me is an amazing feature because uh, the fact that it still has unity over that long of a period of time by forty different authors from all different parts, you know, cultures and and, and various backgrounds, and yet it still has one unified message, and that that should say something about the fact that it comes from God, right? That it has a unified message uh, means that it comes from a unified person. It came from one person, and that is God. All right, we'll pick up here uh, next week. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its um, its joy that it's brought the joy that it's brought to our lives. We pray that you would use it now to strengthen our faith and to uh, focus our attention on our Savior and um, the work that He's done for us and the expectations that You have for us to obey and to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.